and sometimes where patients do everything right from a lifestyle perspective. Welcome to the Primer Blueprint Podcast. Their CRP is still high. From our studios in Malibu, California. But the minute they manage their stress and they start sleeping better, we see it drop back down to normal. Okay, back with Mark for another podcast. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Hey, my pleasure as always. You know that. Yeah, I'm your host, Brad Kearns, again with Mark Sisson, but after our uh, couple dozen of awesome podcasts, we are now going to have a real live human guest to join us and mix things up a little. And we sat down and uh, strategized who would have the privilege of being our very first guest, and we picked one of the great superstars of the planet, the primal movement, and the medical community, Dr. Ron Sinha, joining us from the Bay Area. Ron, are you there? I sure am, and it's a privilege to be first. I'm glad I'm not following some other superstar, so there's no pressure on me at all, right? None, none at all. <laughs> hey, um, Ron, I'm just sitting here remembering when we met at a lunch in San Mateo a couple of years ago, and uh, the strategy that we came up with about taking the Primal Blueprint and the work that you were doing with it and, and maybe directing it more toward what became a culturally tailored guide to losing fat, increasing energy, and avoiding disease. And that became your book, The South Asian Health Solution. Tell me, how are, how are sales going with the book? Well, for, from my perspective, I, I think it's been great. Within a short period of time, I'm just getting so much feedback. Um, and, and as you know, I do a lot of my work in corporations in Silicon Valley. So um, the variety of feedback from just patients in the community, you know, high-tech engineers, HR people, physicians, um, has been phenomenal. You know, a lot of people have reached out to me and they've just told me this is so different than anything else they've read and it's really been so rewarding. So yeah, I can't be- believe a couple of years have gone by and the uh, tremendous work we've done, but but we, we, we've got a growing engaged audience right now and it's, it's, it's been a fantastic experience. Great. And do you feel that there's some, um, are you sensing a buy-in from the medical community around you in the Bay Area? You know, I, I had one example, uh, you know, I, I guess in my case, I sort of had an advantage and that, that, that advantage was I already had an engaged physician community on my side. I work for a medical group with over a thousand docs and I'd been doing this medical consult service for a couple of years. So a lot of my physician colleagues had already witnessed remarkable transformations in my patients where I was following ancestral health principles already. So unlike being a doc sort of cloistered off in a cabin somewhere writing a blog, um, you know, working with docs and patients, you know, every day. So by the time the book came out, luckily, you know, I had a small group of docs that were already very interested in, you know, and, and there's only so many sort of emails and messages I can send to sort of give them advice on how to manage patients. But, but, but the fact that I had that sort of um, group of docs already and then, you know, shortly after the book came out, they invited me for grand rounds and I presented to about three, 350 to 400 physicians in our group. It was a webinar. And, you know, after the presentation, I always expect emails and hate mail to come through and phone calls saying, what are you talking about? But, but really, the overwhelming um, majority of people just responded so positively. So, so that, I think that's been probably my most rewarding thing. I think my biggest sort of nervous factor about the book was, okay, what's going to be the physician response? Are they just going to think I'm a quack and this is just some other doc? But, but I haven't gotten that feedback yet. And I think it's because on the front end, they've already seen um, such amazing transformations in the patients that I've been treating already. So I think, I think that really translated into a big win with the book. So I sense a, uh, an enthusiasm here for the possibility that uh, the medical community at large will be receptive to this kind of message. 
Yeah, and, and I, I got to tell you, I mean, if you would have asked me that question a year or two ago, I think I had a more skeptical answer, but I think there's a big positive wave. And part of it, I got to tell you, Mark, is, you know, I work a lot with primary care doctors. And right now, today, being a primary care doctor can be a pretty tough business. I mean, we're being asked to see more and more patients in less time. And um, even physicians that mean, the, you know, mean well, they just don't have the resources and time to make sort of impactful changes. So they are struggling to find resources rather than their prescription pad to really make an impact on these patients. Can you tell us exactly uh, what, what kind of medicine you practice and what your role is with your various corporate uh, relationships, uh, your operation there in the Bay Area? Yeah, so uh, you know, my training is a, is a general internal medicine doctor, so I pretty much treat you know every imaginable adult um, disease. But what I've sort of morphed into now is more a role of cardiovascular prevention, especially within a specific community, the South Asian community. Although I see people from all ethnic backgrounds because we have such a diverse, high risk community out here. But over the last few years, I've evolved into a role of what they call the medical director of employer services for our group, and so. Our medical group serves all the major companies in Silicon Valley. So I literally go out to these companies. I design health education lectures, wellness programs, um, you know, whatever challenges that they have, fitness challenges. I sort of provide the education component of that. So I've been doing that for the past decade. But now the momentum has reached a point where we're just setting record-breaking attendance records at companies like Oracle and, um, you know, you name it, Yahoo, all these companies. And now to be able to have a book and a resource to give people so they can really turn to has made this just so much more rewarding. That's great. And it's, um, it's good news to hear that people are receptive to the message. You brought up a, um, an interesting point that I, I think has been kind of the bottleneck for a lot of docs, though, over the last several decades. And it's may only get worse with uh, the ACA, and that is the that point at which you've done the testing on the patient, you've determined that there are some issues, and there needs to be some sort of a lifestyle intervention, and yet as a primary care physician with a, a burdening practice, you can't spend more than seven minutes or eight minutes or ten minutes or you know whatever it is you've allocated. So where, how do you get to that point where you can educate one-on-one. I mean, I, I know you can give them the book, but you have a method in your practice where you have a physician's assistant or somebody or a nurse or somebody who spends a little bit more time with a patient, or is it is it sufficient to just give them the book and say, eat right and, and you know, exercise a little bit better? You, you know, you, you bring up a great point. We're having to redesign the system from the inside out, and part of this is really bringing in a care team. In the old days, it was just you and the doc. And you depended, you put all of your trust in the physician and, you know, there's really no other resources around it. Um, you know, I have the benefit because I, I run a consult practice, so I have 40 minutes with these patients and that's usually enough for me to get the message across pretty clearly. But now what I'm doing, Mark, is I'm really creating systems within our medical practice where I can have, um, you know, nutritionists or trainers that I've vetted out to come in and talk to our docs and serve as a partnership resource because we've got, you know, operations, nutrition places, you know, fitness centers that are doing a lot of great testing and offering really good advice. So I'm getting the physicians engaged to using those as resources. You know, the other key thing was um, actually I was able to lecture to our entire nutrition department. And um, doing that training has been huge too because, you know, in a lot of cases we're referring to nutritionists and not seeing the results because they were following standard guidelines. So I, I think now the goal for primary care is trying to find an effective team that can surround and support the physician. So the physician sort of the point guy who will engage the patient and say, listen, this is something serious. 
serious. We got to fix your nutrition. Maybe you know, give them a few lines about their triglyceride to HDL ratio, how they got to cut back on those refined carbs, and then put this team around them to really support that goal. And and you know, we've already started doing that. I think it's working well. But I think this is the only way we're going to be able to um, beat the burden of chronic disease that we're facing in the primary care environment. Yeah, and that's just a, a very time, a labor-intensive effort at some at some level just to be able to get the time face to face one on one with the patient I would imagine exactly uh, and and you know then to have to get compensated by whatever system to make it worth everyone's while to do that yeah uh, so um, in uh, paleo primal ancestral health world we sort of talk about this template that we use that everyone ought to maybe start from and it's a two week to one month template of eliminating grains and sugars and and uh, industrial seed oils and eating unprocessed foods and so on and so forth. But at some point, we uh, I think we run up against uh, some sort of wall with a lot of people. And and you and I, this was basically the genesis for the book, where there there are so many cultural uh, memes and so many uh, customs that uh, people are unwilling to. Uh, adjust even in the face of the science that suggests that maybe there's some foods that they ought not to be eating. I was just at Paleo FX and I talked with uh, some uh, Latino and Hispanic people there who said, look, you know, we love the primal blueprint, but my grandma makes the greatest uh, beans and rice. And, and, <laughs> and it's an insult to her when we go to her house and say, no, 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 we can't, uh, you know, we can't eat this way. So back to the yeah. I don't know, 1.4 billion South Asian uh, people <laughs> on the planet who are uh, apparently facing some major health hurdles. How does this culturally tailored guide manifest itself in real terms to, to different populations and different ethnicities? You know, it really, I mean, we wrote this book, obviously, um, for that population, but you brought up the Hispanic and um, population as well who are facing similar issues. And, and literally, a lot of them come to me saying, can I use this book? And I tell them, yeah, you can replace those Indian flatbreads with tortillas, the dal with, you know, basically beans, and, you know, we can do the same sort of thing. But you bring up a big point about the culture, uh, the cultural norms. And, and, you know, the neat thing has been that, you know, now, you know, since we address this book to all generations, including seniors as well, who have an impact on, you know, family health decisions, some of those simple substitutions have made a big difference. And I kind of use my mom as an example, who's actually coming in today, and she makes amazing shrimp curry, lamb curry, all the wonderful sort of, you know, protein, um, you know, based curries in Indian cooking. But now she knows how to make amazing, like, coconut flour chapatis or cauliflower rice. So, so it, it's a bit of bartering, but, you know, when these patients get the fact that some of those so-called forbidden foods that they had banned from their pantry, like the ghee, um, you know, and a lot of the sources of protein that they thought were probably not good for them, they realize that if we can keep some of that, then maybe it's okay to cut back on some of the grains and things that were causing their insulin resistance. So, so when they see that trade-off, I've been shocked, Mark. I mean, even I've had some diehard, very traditional families, not just from Indian, from Chinese, from Filipino backgrounds. When they swap it out like that, they're still seeing pretty significant changes. And that's why I sort of, you know, preach that metabolic six-pack in the book because people can measure just very simple markers. And, yeah, they're not in ketosis. Yeah, maybe they're not achieving that end goal, but they've still probably added a few years on their life and delayed diabetes for a few, you know, a few more years, which is still a big win. 
Right. So, so it is the conversations are changing, and and um, I think having that impact on different cultures is absolutely possible. Um, but you do need one or two sort of proactive members of the family to really help implement that change. And I think that one of the things that we've sort of d- decided over the past uh, almost decade now that we've been talking about the Primal Blueprint is that it doesn't always need to be this militant. You must do this, and you must <laughs> eliminate that, and and if you don't, then you'll fail. Um, yes. I, I think that there are – what we're seeing here anyway is that there are degrees of success and it, in many cases, a lot of that is up to the choice that the, that the patient or the client or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> the person makes but does so with at least the knowledge that in making that choice, they know what they're getting into or not. That's so true. I'm dealing – I mean I think I can safely say that I'm probably dealing with one of the most non-compliant patient groups on the planet. I mean these are people that have never exercised a day in their life. They have no idea or concept of what healthy nutrition is. And I'm amazed and it's, it's nice because when they make a very simple change that leads to maybe a triglyceride drop of 30 or 40 points – all of a sudden, they see that numerical difference, and then they take that first step. If I had had sort of my previous all-or-nothing approach that you've got to do the whole 30 or you've got to do this, I would have lost him, Mark. I mean, there's no way they would have been able to stick that. And they would have doubted my abilities as a doctor because they say, this Dr. Ron guy, I mean, he's all-or-nothing. He's too militant. But, but now that I'm much gentler with that approach, I'm amazed that I've taken you know an engineer at Google, basically, who's never exercised a day in his life. And now, over the last six months, all of a sudden, he's doing CrossFit at Google on site. You know? And that would have never happened if I had that all-or-nothing approach. So it wasn't something that I necessarily um, deliberately did. But just because I have such a difficult population, I found that a lot of times they scaled down the recommendations I made, but they still had tremendous results. So, so that, that, that's been definitely a learning lesson for me. And I, I think the gentler approach that um, the primal community has taken has definitely um, resonated well with this population as well. Yeah, and this is not this is not to disparage Whole Thirty, which is a great program, and Dallas and Melissa are are awesome people who are doing amazing work. Um, it's it's simply, I guess, from my perspective, and I think you probably, you might agree with me. I wanted to invite the greatest number of people possible to come play with us, and I didn't want to um, frighten people off by saying, "Look, you're either in or you're out," and if you're out, we don't want to hear from you. Uh, so it's it's by various degrees of of bringing on certain lifestyle adaptations or certain food uh, groups or eliminating certain food groups, but but not this all-or-nothing approach, one that just says, look, I mean, here's, here's the general template. Try it out. Number one, we want this to be a sustainable lifestyle for you because it does us – it does neither of us any good for you to go on to this program for 30, 60, or 90 days, uh, demonstrate incredible changes in blood chemistry and maybe some uh, loss of body fat and then, you know, go off the wagon or – or revert back to an old way of eating simply because it was unsustainable. You, you know, the interesting thing that I've found, one part of this population that I've leveraged is the fact that, you know, again, being in Silicon Valley, I've got some of the most driven type A patients you could possibly have. But unfortunately, that drive has been sort of cloistered off into the areas of academic and professional achievement. And the nice thing is sometimes when I start off with that gentler approach and people see their numbers improve because they're so numbers driven – all of a sudden, they want more. They're like, okay, I'm ready to get that triglyceride down to below 200 or to 150 or 100. And then at that point, that's when I get to really, um, you know, sort of transitioning them into a template, which is more like what I would have liked to start from with the beginning. So a lot of people will find their way to a program like the Whole30 with that gentler approach because they just want to see more numbers because they feel so great. And they're like, okay, so how do I get to that next level? So that's been really rewarding is just kind of taking them 
from a point where they've had no education about nutrition and now all of a sudden they're just all over you know Mark's Daily Apple and other resources and now they're really testing my game too because they're, you know they're just so into their um, you know, online research and joining blogs so it's really re rewarding for me to see. That's great. And and you brought up uh, you know the your your work with this uh, with a corporate environment. I'm wondering at what point we're going to see larger corporations start to get into the metrics of what of the changes in their entire population, their their employee population, and yeah. and almost more to what what interests me. If is there a metric to measure improvements in uh, in productivity and decreases in uh, in in lost time and uh, you know mm -hmm. all of the the bottom line dollar changes it may happen when you get a large population of several thousand people who uh, uh, embrace this way of, of uh, living. Yeah, so the, the rewarding part about this, you know, I've been giving a lot of lectures over the last several months, but I think probably my best gig was um, being invited to the Silicon Valley Employers Forum, where they invited me to talk about the book and my approach to, this, to, to the high-tech population, particularly Asian Indians. So we had the HR leads from every major Silicon Valley company come to that. So they literally gave me, um, you know, 30 minutes to just talk all I wanted about it. And, and that's where I highlighted a lot of the challenges of the metrics that people are using right now and how to really interpret insulin-resistant numbers. And believe me, I mean, after that, I got so many emails. And now it's interesting because those same darn handouts that a lot of companies give that show, okay, well, your total cholesterol has to be less than this. Now people have been asking me to sort of revamp those handouts and focus on numbers that really have more relevance. And at this point, I mean, you're bringing up a point about, you know, reducing costs, and definitely employers are focused on that. But right now, they're struggling so much that they just want people that are engaged. They're just looking for participation at this point. I mean, a lot of these companies will pay their employees to take their health risk assessments and just join the fitness challenge. And still, you know, employees are not joining. So, so literally, to give you an example, um, um, Oracle is a company I work very closely with. And we're doing health webinars. In the past, when they do health webinars, they, they could hardly get um, 100 people to join. And just the momentum we built over the last, you know, several months, you know, the last webinar we did, we had over thousand people join the webinar wow. and you know some of them are already Mark's Daily Apple people you know these are you know a lot of Asian Indian engineers but but we're just growing by leaps and bounds we did a lecture at Yahoo you know with standing room only so you know people are desperate for information I think that first level engagement is what companies are after and then the next level is you're right looking for more biometric improvements some productivity measures you know, the other thing I've done, which is really piggyback well on this, is we launched a corporate mobile clinic. So we have an RV, uh, you know, a high-tech RV, basically, our medical group, a group invested in. It goes out to all these companies, and we have a trained physician sitting out there that does physical exams and measures labs. So for a lot of these employees that are addicted to work and they can't get out, they'll come and see me. We'll do a, you know, a seminar, basically. And then literally a week later, a mobile clinic rolls in. Now they know about their metabolic six-pack and the lipid rules and all that stuff. They see the numbers on board, and they don't have an excuse that they can't get time to see their doctor. They see that improvement. And now we're going to start measuring that. And, and really the next step is I just got approval to do a mobile clinic study. And we're going to have our mobile clinic going out to at least a half dozen employers and measure baseline biometrics. I'm going to put them on this ancestral South Asian program. And six months later, we're going to take insulin-resistant South Asian engineers and see what type of an impact we had. So I'm really excited about that So because I really want to start putting some data and evidence to really support the interventions we've been making that we know have been successful over the past few years. Wow, that's an awesome program. It sounds like you're way ahead of uh, most of the rest of the country. And even those who claim to be paleo primal physicians, I mean, that's a, 
it sounds like you've got a lot of great stuff going on. You mentioned the metabolic six-pack. Just for the listeners, why don't we uh, go into what that means? Yeah, you know, the metabolic six-pack was, it's basically um, a bit of a reiteration of the metabolic syndrome criteria. And, and the way I even came up with the name is because I had a lot of people seeing me, they were frustrated. I think they set their goals too high in terms of achieving optimal body composition. And, you know, what, what I teach a lot of my patients and corporate clients is, you know, let's not focus on the outer manifestations in that before-after picture, and let's work metabolically from the inside out. So I have them focus, so I, that's why I call it the metabolic six-pack, because a lot of times you'll see that improvement with biochemical numbers, and really they are based on a lot of insulin-resistant criteria that we're already familiar with, but it focuses on waist circumference, the triglyceride levels I've adjusted to really bring it down b below 100 rather than the general cutoff on labs of, uh, of 150, focusing on the HDL, the blood pressure, or blood sugar measure, you know, either the A1C or fasting blood sugar. And then I also added the C-reactive protein, and that for some docs is a little bit controversial. Some docs only like using that in high-risk cardiovascular patients. But I've really found the HSCRP, the C-reactive protein, a marker for inflammation, to be a pretty decent lifestyle measure as well, too, because I've seen a lot of patients that have a lot of visceral abdominal fat, they're under high stress, and their C-reactive protein comes back elevated. But when we manage the stress and improve their body composition, that number sort of magically floats back down. So, so even though it's not a direct, um, you know, reproducible inflammatory marker in all cases, I'm amazed at some t uh, in some times where patients do everything right from a lifestyle perspective. Their CRP is still high, but the minute they manage their stress and they start sleeping better, we see it drop back down to normal. So that's sort of the whole idea behind the metabolic six-pack. Well, that's a, that we, I think we should highlight that last point because uh, Brad and I just talked about it in a recent podcast, but this notion that controlling stress and getting adequate sleep, which seem to be sort of overlooked by not just the, the, you know, the tech world these days who you know, grew up ordering uh, pizza and, and six packs of Coke and taking a nap under the desk after programming <laughs> for 36 straight hours, but the general population t tends to kind of think that sleep is a is a luxury and that controlling stress is impossible in today's world and why even why even deal with it and yet here, here you are suggesting that once the diet has been reeled in or dialed in a little bit it's really critical to look at stress and sleep you know mark i've had a handful um, i literally just had a cfo of a, of a pretty um, large high-tech company see me for a, a consult and really, if you looked at his numbers on paper, um, you would not think that there was anything wrong. I mean, his metabolic six-pack was fine. He was type A driven, and he was exercises. He, he had all the you know checkboxes ticked off, but um, clearly he was not getting enough sleep, and stress levels were very high. Um, and in his case, he had sort of a remote family history of some heart issues. It wasn't really a, a huge red flag. But based on that, I kind of got his C-reactive protein. It came back, it wasn't severely high. We, we aimed for less than 1.0. His came back at about 2.7. And just off a of gut feeling, I went up and you know, got a coronary calcium scan to sort of measure the calcium in his arteries. And his calcium score was off the charts. I mean, he had impending plaque that probably would have translated within a heart attack, you know, within a couple of years or, or sooner. Um, so, you know, that, that's one case I'm telling you. But I am seeing a lot of type A people with, you know, they're exercising, they're doing their type A exercise and their type A lifestyle. Their numbers look pretty good. But um, th there's clearly something else going on. And I got to tell you, I, you know, I've always been sort of, I've sort of known this before, but I don't think I even prioritized it as much. But now that I'm seeing it more in this community, um, I'm taking it really seriously. And, uh, and really, I'm being asked to give more talks on stress. And uh, I, I think this is turning out to be one of the number one factors in this community and, and really worldwide as well. 
So with a type A, how do you <laughs> get someone to willingly accept the notion that they got they have to go to bed a little bit earlier and and maybe dial back their work? I mean, aren't aren't these the people who are running the show, the C level people who are <laughs> Who who claim that you know there's not enough hours in the day and there's stuff that has to be done and you know how do you uh, impart that message to them? You know you've got to give them physiological and anatomical evidence. They're all so data and evidence driven. So literally the, the talk I gave at Yahoo about a month ago was on stress. They've given stress seminars before, and and you know luckily we had an amazing um, you know turnout for that and great feedback. And really half of the talk mark that I talk about stress, I show them MRI images of what happens to the brain. And the key thing is to really show that connection between brain health and stress too, and how uh, you know. How um, there's premature accelerated aging in you know, in a stressed out brain, and anybody even in the C level knows that as they age, they want skin in the game, you know, because otherwise they're going to re get replaced. I mean, they need to keep their cognitive skills completely sharp. So when they sort of see that data, you know, we didn't have that data and evidence before. It's amazing looking at functional MRI images of a stressed out brain. When they start seeing that objective evidence, they know they've got to start keeping it, um, you know, taking it more seriously. Now the problem is, is how do you get them to actually make those changes? In one way that I've been really successful and you know are some of the apps that I prescribe in the book so so one thing is particularly using heart rate variability so you've got some objective measures so I've had my patients use your smartphone just sort of measure that so they get some objective feedback so they take some of these small steps you know if they use your Fitbit or body tracking device to measure sleep and they see those changes if they can see some numerical objective improvement rather than me saying yeah make sure you get your eight hours a night or whatever when they, when they have some way to measure that then I see a lot more engagement and then they feel better, you know, and sometimes we can track maybe some measures that um, show some improvement. That'll give them some additional reinforcement. But but I think there is enough um, objective information and interventions out there that now it's much more doable than it was in the past. Yeah, it's really quite interesting the number of uh, of new metrics that have arisen, and this heart rate variability is is very interesting to me. We sort of used a a, a really crude version of that when I was an athlete, and we basically. Mm you know, uh, test our resting heart rate in the morning upon waking. And if it was uh, way out of whack, we theoretically wouldn't go out and train that day, although that rarely happened uh, <laughs> <laughs> because that's the nature of a type A athlete. Yeah. Um, you become sort of an expert in this heart rate variability world as it's evolving. Tell us a little bit, tell the audience a little bit about what, what that means, heart rate variability, and how, how it's used to tailor a lifestyle. Yeah, you know, in the area of stress, obviously I know athletes use it for training purposes, but in the area of stress that I'm dealing with here in Silicon Valley, you know, the whole concept is, you know, when you've got a pulse rate of, say, 60, you know, a lot of people think that your heart is beating like a metronome, just right on par between beat to beat. But, um, you know, in a normal healthy heart, basically, that's got enough parasympathetic or enough of that relaxation response activated there, you do get normal range of heart rate variability. So we should see beat-to-beat -beat variations rather than that sort of metronome type distribution within the pulse. But people that are under high stress levels, they actually lose that variability. And high stress, negative emotions, anger, aggression, all of these things can really have a significant impact on that variability. And so, you know, there, there are tools that you can buy. There's devices, but using your smartphone, you can actually get a rough surrogate marker of what that looks like. Now, I got to tell you, Mark, as much as I sort of preach this out there, I, I wouldn't say that I'm 100% convinced that this will directly correlate to stress levels, 
But you know what it does is regardless of the fact is it creates mindfulness. All of a sudden people learn to slow down and they breathe to basically try to achieve that um, level of heart rate variability. It may work, it may not, um, but at least it's making them conscious about a number. It's just like pedometers. People ask me, okay, which is the most accurate device? Should I get a Fitbit? Should I get an upband? And, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like, you know what? I don't care if it's 70, 80% accurate. At least it's giving you a number that's going to make you move. And for the first time, at least, this is a number that, again, I don't think it's 100% accurate, but it gives you some feedback. And patients have clearly um, told me that definitely when they're under stress, they can see their numbers, you know, change. They know how to sort of um, add that rhythmic breathing to make an intervention. So so I think it's a it's a pretty cool tool, but I don't think it's something that I would put, you know, complete 100% evidence that, yes, every time you're stressed out, your HRV is going to be off, but at least it makes a habit and a ritual and gives you some objective feedback numbers. You know, when I was, uh, again, back in the old days, I would take my resting heart rate and I would um, lie still and breathe rhythmically and I'd put my finger on my uh, carotid or, or on my brachial artery or whatever. And, and uh, every once in a while, I, I, I go, oh my God, I skipped a beat. Something's wrong. <laughs> and in fact, it meant something was right, you know, because... Um, <laughs> yeah. There was so much variability from one. I kept expecting it to be metronomic because that was, in my mind, it was supposed to be metronomic. And right. now that we, now we know that there is such a fine tuning that goes on in the body, where right. the heart is the, the heart's a demand mechanism. It responds to the signals that are being given to it. Yeah. And if the signal says, "Look, we got plenty of oxygen. We got plenty of this. We're not, you know, nobody's fighting to to survive. Uh, <laughs> you know, let's just let's just beat as we need to." And no extra beats. You know, we don't need to waste beats putting stuff out there versus when we're under chronic stress and we get that burst of adrenaline or that that cortisol that is now literally causing that metronomic beat because it's saying, okay, we don't care what the situation is, we're going to pump faster. We're just yes. going to pump faster to to supply whatever nutrients may or may not be needed. And that's the the irony of of course the, you know, modern lifestyle having a, a, a adrenal glands and a, and a parasympathetic nervous system in a sympathetic nervous system that, you know, is, is able to respond to life or death situations, which almost oh, yeah. never <clears throat> occur. And, then, yes. and, and yet we create them. Totally. You, you know, with my executives too, I kind of tell them the concept, you know, cause a lot of them are, are, they squeeze their high intensity workouts into such a tight schedule. So literally from 12 to one, they might be doing their CrossFit workout and they're seeing clients at like 115. And I tell them that, you know, you just went from a totally high intensity workout to a high intensity meeting with absolutely no rest in between. And I tell them, you know, your concept for his life should be like your workouts. It should be high intensity interval living basically where you've got high intensity intervals of workouts and meetings but you've got to have a rest period in between you can't just go continuously like that and I've done that to myself Mark because before I would see patients all morning I'd go to a lecture then I'd see patients with very little break and I was wiped out by the end of the day I felt miserable and yeah now what I do is I definitely put in the 10 or 15 minutes if I'm at Oracle already I'm gonna walk around their grounds before I see patients and yeah I've lost some productivity there's a patient I could have scheduled into that slot but now that I see the impact that it's having on health, I'm like, screw it. You know, I'm going to schedule in rest periods whenever I possibly can because it's just not worth it. There's no way I'm going to see all the patients in Silicon Valley. So, you know, I've got to take care of myself if I'm, no, you know, I'm going to avoid burnout. Exactly. It's that it's that it's rampant in society today. OK, if I can only just see one more patient, I can make, you know, X more difference or I can make X more dollars or yeah. if I can only see one more client in the next you know, <laughs> schedule. This. And at some point you go, when is enough enough? Right. I mean, it's like, yes, when have you overdone it? And and I find myself in that same situation where, hell, I'm almost on a daily basis. I have to go take, <laughs> take a moment and stop and go, OK, 
what's more important that I live, you know, to be 90 or 100 fully functioning and, and being able to do this at a pace that's comfortable for me or kick ass today and drop dead tomorrow. <laughs> right. You know, and I mean, I, I think you, you, you talked about the sort of the bottom line metrics that you can show the quantified self aspect of taking a C-level um, exec and saying, look, here's the, here's the real numbers that come back from your tests. And if you continue along this way, you're either going to drop dead or you're going to cease to function at the highest level that you want. And so your only choice is to is to pull back a little bit. And here, you know, now we have to decide what areas you you can you can make those compromises so that you can sort of have the best of both worlds. Absolutely. Yeah, well said. Guys, that was fascinating, especially going off into the stress markers because, uh, and you write about this very well in your book too, Ron, it's it's more than just connecting the dots and nailing the diet or doing what the doctor says about uh, this kind of workout and that kind of workout, the rushing around and the pace. And it reminded me of your sidebar in the Primal Blueprint, Mark, when you were talking about us professional triathletes and the, the, the languid, lazy days that we would uh, exist in, we, we did about the same amount of training <laughs> as, your, as your average hardcore harried amateur who was, you know, slipping on the tie after that lunchtime swim workout and, and busting back into the office with dripping wet hair. Meanwhile, we're lounging on the lounge chairs and stretching and having a snack and then heading out for more miles on the bike. And you know, all told, when you when you proceed at that comfortable pace and and watch those stress markers and those signs that you're getting harried and frazzled, and, and and be able to turn it down at a moment's notice, that's when things are really clicking for you. So, I thought I would um, close with that thought because it's so important, and you guys you guys uh, express that very well in your books and in talking to people. So. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ron, on the podcast. That was a pleasure. Mark, what do you think? Should we have this guy back in uh, six months for another follow-up with uh, how things are going on the front line? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think this is the most interesting area of all that we're doing right now is, is the, um, the willingness of the general population to accept these sorts of lifestyle changes and even more so the, the willingness of the medical community to embrace this. So, uh, you know, Ron's definitely one of the leaders in that front, and I'm uh, very, very interested in the progress that he's making. Yeah, I'd be happy to come back. We might even have some initial, you know, results from some of the interventions and trials we've done by that point. So, so I'd love to update people on that. Let's do it. So, Dr. Ron Sinha, the author of The South Asian Health Solution, look it up on Amazon.com. It's a wonderful book, not only for South Asians, but for the big picture of getting your risk factors right and your lifestyle dialed in. Thank you for joining us on the Primal Blueprint podcast with Mark Sisson. Hey, podcasts are great, but how about a life-changing weekend at PrimalCon? Coming up is the historic occasion of our fifth annual event in Oxnard that's on the beach in Southern California at the amazing Embassy Suites Mandalay Beach Resort. It's about an hour north of Los Angeles, one of the best-kept secrets in Southern California, this resort right on the sands of the beautiful beach town of Oxnard. And we have an amazing park there, an expanse of grass and all kinds of fun stuff to play on. So we'll be spending a fun weekend outdoors with an awesome slate of presenters talking and presenting on all manner of physical activity, diet, health, nutrition, 
posture and movement mechanics, all kinds of topics covered. So you'll get a great education from the world's leading experts, but we'll also have a ton of fun and excitement. Of course, we're going to play the annual Survivor Team Challenge, just like you see on TV, except this one is more fun, more challenging. It includes brain teasers and good team strategy challenges. We're also going to have, of course, the world-famous Primal Con Ocean Plunge slash Jacuzzi Sprint. So you're going to run into the pretty cold ocean, guaranteed. And then about a two-minute sprint where we take over the entire jacuzzi at the Mandalay Beach Resort. People look at us like we're crazy, but it's tons of fun. And then we're going to dine on the all-time fabulous Primal Con food, which you can see all kinds of pictures of on the website. So visit PrimalBlueprint.com. Look for the Primal Con link. You can see pictures and videos chronicling the wonderful times we've had in Oxnard over the past four years. And we certainly hope you can join us for the fifth annual Primal Con Oxnard, September 25th through 28th, 2014.